CT Startup Podcast, an inside perspective on the startup ecosystem in the great state of Connecticut. I'm your host, Michael Kaufman. This is Eric Francis. James McLaughlin. Dave Menard. And we are sitting here at a roundtable discussion with Mr. Mark Lassoff. Mark, would you introduce yourself, please? Howdy. Uh, I'm Mark Lassoff. I am a serial entrepreneur, uh, spent many years working in the Austin, Texas ecosystem, and then moved home here to beautiful Connecticut. Nice. So you're actually a native of uh, of Connecticut then, huh? Well, technically no. I'm a native of New York, but uh, moved here as soon as my parents got money. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that how it works? Uh, yeah, that's what I'm told. Yeah. That, that's the southern half of the state. Yeah. Well, that's where I, that's where I grew up, so. So, so New York to Connecticut to Austin, why did you come back to Connecticut? Uh, colon cancer. Um, it, it's the colon cancer states on the license plates. No, I, um, <laughs> I, I haven't seen that one. I've seen the lighthouse. Yeah, I, I wanted to spread some colon cancer around and after months of work, I found that it's not contagious. Um, <laughs> no, what, what happened was I was, uh, in a company in Austin called, uh, Network Logistic. Um, we were a multi-tiered IT services company, and I ran the software and web development section of it. I was vice president of the company. Uh, the owner, a good friend of mine and, and, and a strong personal mentor, Pierre Kerbage, uh, sold the company. Um, it got spun into whatever like Best Buy's like, real IT group is. And so I didn't have a job and then found out that uh, I needed a colon resection uh, due to a tumor in my colon. So I... Uh, Decided I'd rather have that done up here where the doctors didn't practice next to a pizza hut um, as opposed to Texas. So, um, do, so do we uh, have any listeners from Texas? I just want to make sure. Not anymore. <laughs> not, any, like one. not anymore. Um, no, I mean, I, I, you know, I just uh, having grown up here, trusted the doctors. And, you know, I, I found a doctor who uh, more or less invented the robotic procedure for a colon resection. And he was practicing at Hartford Hospital, Paul Vignati. Um, so he did the resection, we did some chemo and, you know, it was one of the things they don't tell you about convalescing is, um, in addition to feeling sick, you're not debilitated, but you're sick when you're on chemo, but not so sick. You can't do anything. So I was bored and I wasn't able to travel and do the things I normally do and consult and teach. So I started a company, um, and then that's kind of how I wound up staying here again. And now I'm, I'm really glad I did. Um, I really you know, do enjoy and love Connecticut. And, uh, you know, a good weekend in Connecticut's better than a, a good week in Texas, I think. Well, I'm glad we got that on tape. <laughs> well, <you know. laughs> yeah. call, call, call the tourism department. Uh. So tell us a little bit about the company. So Learn to Program Media is a company that produces online video content that's designed to teach web, mobile, and game development, and we're monetized by online courses. Um, we spend most of our time producing content that we spread throughout the internet video ecosystem to bring people into our marketing funnel, and then we offer them a myriad of excellent and well-reviewed courses that can teach them web, mobile, or game development. Um, we are just over 
depending on what you count as a start date. We incorporated in August 2011. We started kind of before that. But uh, we have now just above 650,000 online students taking courses from us. Um, we are one of the top sellers on uh, Silicon Valley Darling Udemy, or Udemy, depending on who you ask, which is an <laughs> online course marketplace. We also sell through a number of other companies like Amazon and Adobe. And it, it's been kind of a fun ride. This is not going to be a $500 million company, but the growth is, is uh, nice to watch. And we're able to do it with a fairly small crew in beautiful Vernon, Connecticut. Very nice. So who, who are these courses geared to? Is it toward newbies or, mm-hmm. you know, halfway through? Can you basically, if I had some experience. Yeah, newbies who I... are halfway through. is uh, <laughs> <laughs> Not even sure what that means. Um, no. The... <laughs> Let me take another stab at that. Newbies, slightly experienced, uh, journeymen. Masters of the craft. I mean, would you recommend they get on board at a certain stage? Uh, it is, it is designed for, you mentioned journey and I got excited. Um, <laughs> our courses are exclusively designed for Steve Perry. Um, no, the, our courses are designed for beginners. Um, people who want to get into web, mobile, and game development. So we have, a, we have actually, you know, we looked at who's our customer doing the typical analysis and, um, you know, we found out that we have five really kind of archetypical customers. The first being the career changer who wants to get into development and is in a completely unrelated career. The second is a slight variation on that is the tech person who's in like help desk support who wants to get into a development career because that's where the money is. And then we have, you know, people who are hobbyists who want to build a game or have an idea for an app and really want to, you know, make that happen. And then a couple of other categories of of primary customers. But I mean, it's really interesting because, you know, they tell you that, you know, you're going to have this customer composite that becomes obvious to you and that's who you should focus on. And we kind of developed backwards where I put courses online for almost a year, and we're still learning about who our customers are, and there's no typical archetype. And when you look across the spectrum, every demographic from age to locale to level of experience, we tend to run like 20%, 20%, 20%. So sometimes, you know, the tests that you're supposed to do, if you read all the books, you know, that are supposed to be so definitive before you buy your yacht, um, are not. And, you know, you've got to go with what the data tells you. And the data tells us that our customers are coming from many different segments. And that's probably because of our distribution strategy. And that at this point, focusing on a singular customer um, archetype would probably cut our sales significantly. So, you know, that who's your customer question can be a little bit dangerous for some types of companies. Not everything, you know, happens according to the way that uh, it's supposed to in the book. So does everybody go through the pro, like the the videos the same way? I mean, you said these, you know, you have different kind of customer types. So are they going through the the content the same way, or is it is it they can jump all over the place? So you know, it, it's really hard to answer because we don't have good metrics that tell us what order people are watching videos in or, or doing the lessons in. What we do know is that typically people use the courses in two ways. One is kind of tabula rasa education. They don't know anything about the topic. So they tend to go through sequentially and learn each lesson. And of course, you know, it's, that's an advantageous, advantageous way to do it if you're brand new, because there is a spiral learning where you're dependent on material that you've learned previously, mm-hmm. you know, in each subsequent chapter. The second method is something called performance support. 
Um, and that's kind of like, you know, your law library or, you know, your resources, you know, the checklists if you're an airline pilot. It's the stuff that helps you do your job while you're doing it. And oftentimes developers who are working in a new technology need a lot of performance support. How do I do, you know, this in PHP or some other technology? And they'll watch just that specific video that gives them that answer. Okay. And which, uh, which languages do you guys teach? Pretty much all of them. We have, uh, 42 online courses, everything from HTML5 to Ruby on Rails, Node.js, a bunch of, you know, popular libraries. I mean, we really, of anything a beginner would need to know to get their first productive work done or their first job, we've got a course on it. So I know uh, I've worked with a couple of developers in my day, and I know a question that they hate being asked is when someone comes up to them and says, I want to learn how to code. Which language should I learn? And they're just like, well, it's it's up to you, you know? So do you ever get asked that question? And if so, how do you respond? I only get asked that question about 30 times a day. Yep. Um, <laughs> and so my response is another question, which is, what do you want to do? Why are you learning programming? Languages are like tools. You know, you probably could take a screw and bash it into the wall with a hammer, but that's not the optimal use of the hammer or the screw. So if you want to do, for example, web development, well, the answer there is HTML5, JavaScript, and PHP, that progression, which we teach in something called Become a Certified Web Developer. That's our progression for people who want to learn basic web development. But if you told me, I really want to learn mobile, I might point you in the direction of Swift for iOS or Java for Android, or again, JavaScript and HTML5 to develop hybrid applications. If you want to develop games, then it's, you know, what kind of games do you want to develop? Casual web games or, you know, serious video games. So, you know, pointing people towards the right tools has a lot to do with what their goals are for learning software development. Um, and it's important to talk about, you know, have that discussion with someone who's new because not everybody's learning for the same reason. You know, if, if you're just learning to get a sense of programming, I use Python. As a matter of fact, I, in South by Southwest, um, we had 500 people in the room learning Python at the same time in a session I did called Write Your First Lines of Code. And that's a good general purpose language, but it's not real strong if you actually want to complete a project, but it's good for learning. So, I mean, there's, there's a million good answers, and really there's not a bad answer to the question, where should I start? Start with a language and learn the basics of coding, learn how to debug, learn how to take that code and make it do what you want to do, learn how to plan out a program and learn how to test as you go along, incremental testing, and, and you'll be fine. And it doesn't matter what language you do that in because once you learn your first language, the second one is always much, much easier. You know, Mike, it's important to remember that there are no dumb questions except for that one. <laughs> that was the, the fragile ego was shattered the about three podcasts ago, so it doesn't even matter. Bring it on. You did mention <coughs> Swift, though, which if our mm -hmm. listeners don't know, and mm -hmm. I, I'll probably blow it here, but uh, it's Apple's new language, correct? It's their new right. programming language? Right. Um, originally, they used Objective-C for iOS programming, which is iPhone and iPad. Objective-C actually is an older language that goes back to, if you want to talk entrepreneurial history here, Steve Jobs' Next Machine. Anybody remember that? Yeah. If you do, you probably remember also like Ario Speedwagon and Magnum P.I., um, cause two of my favorites. <laughs> yeah. You ever, you ever watch Magnum PI with the sound off to Ario Speedwagon soundtrack? Mind blowing. Um, <laughs> so I actually have tickets for Ario Speedwagon at Twin Rivers Casino in September. Well, Magnum PI was the ringtone on my phone for about five years. 
Uh, keep on loving you on this. Keep on. I'm a fan here. Yeah. Um, Don't stop believing. So, <laughs> earlier Swift. reference to Journey. <laughs> Mike, I think you asked me about the Swift programming language. Mm-hmm. Um, Swift is Apple's new language for iOS development. It's a much easier language than Objective C, although my criticism of it is it doesn't appear quite done because it's still dependent on a lot of the older libraries to get some of the more complex tasks done within iOS. Um, I like it better. I think it's a step in the right direction. I think it needs more marination. So at this point, if you wanted to learn Swift, you should have or you should have some limited knowledge of Objective-C. No, you, you, okay. re- you really don't. If you want to learn Swift, learn to program.tv. There's a great course called Swift for Beginners. There's also my book on Amazon called Swift Programming for Beginners. It was actually the first Swift book published. So until the other books were published, we made a lot of money on that. Hmm. Um, but uh, then all the typical players had their Swift book out. But, you know, that's one of the things, you know, one of the reasons we have this company, and it brings up an important point, is, you know, if there was an innovation, and I'm a big fan of decoupling innovation from entrepreneurship, I think we couple them wrongly and too tightly, but regardless of that, our innovation, if anything, was kind of finding this ecosystem for video and content publishing that very few people were using and kind of hacking it to maximize the value of every content asset that we developed. So let's talk about the uh, the early years of your company. We're only going back four years ago. But <laughs> the early years, like last year? Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, one of the things that we always ask people here and that we're very curious about are the unique challenges you faced in getting a company off the ground in Connecticut. Uh, you've already professed love for the state, but having talked to you outside of the podcast, I know that you do have some issues with the state. So how... Uh, how is it for you? And you serve as a mentor to other companies well, getting started today. Right, I, I do mention, but let's start with the fact that I'm incredibly smart. <laughs> and don't you know being incredible? Wow, <laughs> it's an honor to be in your presence, and it's an honor to be in yours. <laughs> um, he literally glows. He's, he's he just glows. That's called hygiene, Michael. Um, <laughs> as as Michael stares at a spot on his shirt that he said is from his last vacation. <laughs> it's a radio show. They'd never know. Yeah, well, that's that's true. I, in our company, we do our podcasts without pants on. So, you guys are across the table. You have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, so the early days, getting started, challenges here in Connecticut. So at first, you know, I would say that really, and I've started companies in Austin, Texas, which is the hotbed of all you know entrepreneurial activity. Just became recently the number one town for startup density. Um, so. You know, you would think that there was all sorts of people banging down your door to help in Austin. Well, there's not, and that was the same experience here. Um, so I was able to rely on my previous experience and, and get through the initial startup hurdles pretty well. Um, I am a big fan of revenue first, which uh, is not a popular way to build a company, but tends to be one of the most stable and, and one of the surest bets. So... My whole attention the first two years was building revenue because once you have revenue coming in every month, there's a lot more you can do. And also we're focused on building product, not on begging for money from people who probably won't give it to you. So, you know, with that attitude and that type of approach in Connecticut, you're fine. You're fine in Texas. You're fine in anywhere you go because you're not reliant on the outside ecosystem to help you build. And that really was was my approach here. And again, I'm not looking to build a hundred dollar hundred dollar business, a hundred million dollar business. You know, I'm looking to build a nice 
small business that either becomes a good lifestyle business that takes care of me for a very long time in the manner to which I have become accustomed, um, or uh, becomes a tar- acquisition target from a larger publisher. And so my goals were reasonable. And you know what? I own 90% of the company. And the only reason I don't own 100% is because I chose to give 10% to one of the employees who dropped out of school to start with me. So if that's your approach, you're fine anywhere. And that's one of the reasons we were able to start up easily here in Connecticut without a lot of hiccups. Um, if you're dependent on a lot of resources to help you, at this point, the Connecticut ecosystem is still immature and those resources are first developing. So it's difficult. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, one of the things I like here in Austin, I was always a small fish in a giant pond. I mean, there was obviously much bigger successes and more important people and you know, bigger investments being made than I ever, you know, dealt with at all. Um and being in Connecticut's given me a chance to bring some of that Austin experience to Connecticut, mentor new companies, mentor new founders, and really help have an impact on bringing the ecosystem here along, uh, you know, to become something, I think, uh, you know, that, that fulfills the potential here. I mean, we are in one of the wealthiest states of the union. We are in one of the states that's got the best educated workforce. We're in a state with that on almost all scales ranks highest for quality of life and education. So those are resources that as a state we need to take advantage of to make that startup experience easier for most people, not just experienced entrepreneurs who come here and don't need a lot of the support systems. See, that's interesting because it's one of the things that uh, we've talked about quite a bit on the podcast prior, prior to this is the fact that companies do need to focus more on revenue building and less on chasing down uh, potential investors. And as well as, uh, you know, I mean, I know you're a big supporter of this as well, but being, building out our entrepreneur community here in Connecticut and bringing the resources that Connecticut has to that community. And certainly one of the purposes of our podcast is to highlight companies that are here in Connecticut that other people should be looking at, uh, people from within and without the state. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's reaffirming, uh, to hear that from someone of your intellect. Um, we really appreciate that. Thank you. You can get off your knees now. Oh, okay. Thanks. <laughs> now, when you say revenue first, so you, it, your company started with two employees, you and this, the student or, or what? Yeah, we started with, with one. Um, Just, that was me. Okay. And, you know, Kevin came on board when we had the revenue to support a part-time employee and then a full-time employee and then two and then 10. So, you know, I mean, but growth happened as it was supported by revenue growth. Because if you're not growing revenue, you're doing something wrong and growing headcount mm-hmm. or growing marketing expense, et cetera, doesn't make sense until you have the formula correct. So were you, so like the revenue side of it, were you paying yourself from the beginning? Were you trying to think about it? How can I support myself with this business, with this revenue? And then when you I, got to the point, like, and then you expanded when you got more revenue? I was not paying myself for the first 18 months or so. Okay. Um, and then I started paying myself a little bit. And I'm now I'm paying myself a six figure salary. So, um, you know, like I said, it's so now I'm, 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 I'm on the plus side. I'm making some money. Um, you know, I'm paying my living expenses and, and, and for my, uh, habit of taking new entrepreneurs out to dinner. All that is, all that is paid for. Next week, we're setting it up. You'll, you'll have the lobster thermidor. 
Two. Two, okay. Yes. I, I think Mike's getting beyond the point of being a new entrepreneur. That's that's true. I'll, I'll have the steak sandwich in the Dave, steak sandwich, on. please. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give you the, I'll send you the doggy bag. Come on, man. I well, paid for your dinner last night. I will give you the 20. Just download <laughs> Venmo. Download Venmo. So, Mark, you mentioned that you mentor entrepreneurs and founders here, um, you know, take, aside just from taking them out to dinner. Uh, and I've heard you express in the past disappointment that there aren't more uh, successful entrepreneurs like you doing doing likewise. Do you feel that that's kind of a, an obligation, you know, in an, the entrepreneurial ecosystem for this for successful people to to try to pass along some of what they've learned? One hundred percent, yes. Um, you know, there is an obligation, I think, within an ecosystem that you have benefited from to give back. And I wonder, and I'm not going to call any of them out, but there are several companies that have started here in Connecticut that have their name on the side of a building now that maybe you see off the Merritt Parkway, um, that I wonder, where are these people? Why aren't they out there? And, you know, I'm not saying go out there and spend all your time mentoring new entrepreneurs, but, you know, make an appearance, make give a talk, um, come to Startup Weekend, come to an event, you know, come to a happy hour, be a presence. You know, have new entrepreneurs tour your company, answer questions, even just be an inspiration, get yourself profiled. But what I found is that the companies that have started here, the founders are generally very, very heads down um, and focused on their business, which is smart, but, you know, to a point of, I think, detriment here for, for the community. We all benefit if the entrepreneurial community here in Connecticut improves. And one of the comments I had when I first came here is, you know, I need to find someone who's better than me at this, who I can get some advice from. But, you know, if you think it's bad for startups, look at what's going on with stage two companies like mine that are either ready to scale or ready to look for, you know, serious cash infusion. And there's literally nothing. Um, I, I, you know, when I was at, when I was matched up with a mentor through the state system, my mentor was someone who had been very successful in corporate America, but hadn't started anything. Um, hadn't started his own car, I think. So it wasn't, you know, there's a big difference between being president of an enterprise company that you worked your way up from sales to sales manager to, you know, VP to, to president. Then there's starting a company and facing those battles. There's two totally different scenes in business. And I, I, I think we, we make a, a serious error by conflating the two here in Connecticut. You know, startup ecosystems need to be led by startup people and they need to be led by entrepreneurs, not by, uh, service providers and people who service entrepreneurs. That, that almost never works. But we don't have the entrepreneurs here. So out of necessity, I think a lot of service providers and allies have filled that vacuum. So we do need those entrepreneurs very much to step up and be part of the growth here. You know, I mean, you can sit back and complain about the business climate here, whatever that really means. I mean, to me, I, I think it's a bunch of bullshit. But... um you know, what are you doing to improve it besides complaining about your tax rate? And if you look at it, you know, if you look at the full tax levy, on average, someone in Connecticut only pays about two and a half, two, excuse me, two percent more than the national average. 
So I think we need to get over the tax thing and look at the other things that make an ecosystem work. Because if you talk to startup founders, the amount of taxation is pretty far down on the list of where they decide to locate. So the problem here is not taxation. Would, do I wish it was lower? Yes. Uh, would I support a cut in the corporate tax? Yes, if it was made up for in some reasonable way. Um, but the problems are obviously on the spending side. However, without getting political here, that's not why startups aren't starting here. It, there's a, there's a whole list of other reasons that come before taxation. And we're so focused, I think, as a community on the taxation that we're losing sight of the big picture. Well, that's absolutely <clears throat> correct in the sense that, you know, it's not, it's not as if there's not a startup community here, but it is in its infancy. And we have some great universities, and, and certainly you and I, Mark, have been very active in these communities. We've run into each other in a number of places. Um, and, and some of these companies are really exciting, but they get, they get better offers for money elsewhere. They get better offers for support elsewhere. Well, and we're so siloed, though. You know, the huh. university, quote-unquote, startups, the universities tend to be very protective of them. And, you know, there's this fight over IP and who kind of, quote unquote, owns these startups and who gets credit if these startups expand. Mm -hmm. So we're so siloed that, you know, we're, we're losing track of, of the community as a whole. And that, I find that really distressing, too. You know, in Austin, there was nice flow through from the University of Texas, which is an IP generating machine, into community assets, into and, and cooperation with local enterprise, local corporations and even small business. Um, that just doesn't exist here. I find it to be very, very provincial here where people are protecting their turf, quote unquote. I, I think that's true. I, I also think though that, that it's slowly changing I, in the sense that I've seen more in the past three years of, uh, I see a lot of companies that are coming out of UConn, for instance, bleed out into Hartford. They, they start showing up at places like Reset or the Grove in New Haven. I don't see that as much with the Yale companies. I see Yale is, is still being very much a silo into itself. Um, UConn's made more efforts to try to, they're even opening up a new building here in Hartford where they're going to house students. I mean, they're trying to become more part of the community, but it is an ongoing concern. Absolutely. And as tight as the community is, and it is a remarkably tight community in terms of for the people who are active in it, it doesn't take much to start getting to know everybody in it and to really uh, circulate throughout the community. No, um, I'm actually tired of these damn people already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But you came on the podcast anyway, so we appreciate it. Uh, so it's, you know, there, there's, there's, things are looking up, but there's a lot of work to go. What I'm curious about is you recently served or you are serving as a mentor at Mass Challenge. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that experience? So Mass Challenge is, is reputedly the largest accelerator in the country. Um, and we have, I don't know how many teams in, in five or six different areas. Um, I don't, I mean, I think the fact that I'm mentoring at Mass Challenge probably says more about their vetting process and less about me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I, I know some of the other mentors there and, and maybe that says more about their vet, their vetting process. But, um, they have some interesting companies and I think the distinction between companies in Mass Challenge and the companies that I work with here in Connecticut, a present company excluded, of course, is the maturity of the idea, the execution, business processes, um, and the urgency to move forward. There is, with the companies in Mass Challenge, a great deal of urgency, a great deal of maturity to the idea, to the teams, um, in general. 
you know, and then also there's also teams who are still looking for their technical co-founder. You know, so I mean, there is that, but I think, you know, one of the things that we're, one of the ways we haven't serviced Connecticut startups well is underlining that sense of urgency to move quickly and move to market. Um, I don't see startup founders here working the kind of hours I saw founders work in, in, um, Austin or that I see in Mass Challenge. Um, that's not to say Mass Challenge is perfect and that everything in, in, you know, in Massachusetts is without problems. Um, there's definitely, you know, a downside to what you see there as well. But, you know, they've got something like 150 mentors and probably 120 of which are, are very well qualified, smart, successful people. Um, but I also see people who I think are in Mass Challenge for reasons that I'm not used to providing mentorship on. Like, I want you to, I want to introduce, I want you to introduce me to every investor you know is a common theme from entrepreneurs. And, you know, well, that's, that's, that's an interesting thing to do. I'm not sure your business model is valid. Have you tested it? Well, you know, so, I mean, you still have that same, we built this and they will come attitude, which is prevalent, I think, through, but through entrepreneurs everywhere. I built something. Now I must sell the something that I built, even if it isn't a, a solution for the problem I think I'm solving. But I think Mass Challenge, far and away, serves as an interesting model of what we can aspire to and the way we can service new entrepreneurs well and grow business and grow the community here in Connecticut. So do you think do you, the other mentors, so you said you're really big on revenue, right? You're really revenue first, revenue first. Have, have you been seeing little clashes from other mentors there saying, you know, let's not worry about revenue, let's get something, you know? What I've, what I've been seeing is that there is in all ecosystems a portion of people who are mentoring out of self-interest um, and perhaps are investors either at the angel level or VCs mm-hmm. um, who perhaps have a different approach due to that and see potential opportunity for themselves. Um, I'm not going to call it anyone specific, but that happens everywhere. And, you know, entrepreneurial leadership and ecosystems really has to be out of a sense of selflessness without the, without looking for personal gain. Um, so, you know, that always bothers me. And I think that's one of the reasons that there's this overfocus on funding and getting funded, especially for SaaS companies, which is my area of expertise, software as a service. You don't need a lot of money to get your, um, prototype out there for a SaaS company. But raising money feeds the whole system. It pay it, yep. it pays the investors, it pays the attorneys, it creates legal work, right? So that's what feeds the whole system. And 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 the as the money goes up the ladder and people get out and get back in, it's all dependent on levels of investment. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, we have a very skewed system. The other reason for this is Shark Tank has done us no favors. <laughs> <laughs> Not at um, all. You know, I was reading an episode of Shark Tank magazine. It used to be called Inc. Are you familiar with that? <laughs> but now every month features either Damon John or Mark Cuban yeah. or, or the real estate lady from from uh, from New York or the or the H or the Home QVC, Shopping Network. Yeah. yeah, the QVC lady. Um, you know, we've we've become confused in the difference between you know the profit market Lamonis who will come in and ruin your business. I mean, fix your business. Um, See what he did with Swanson's fish market in Bridgeport if you want to see what the profit, how big of a profit he really is. Hmm. Um, but, you know, we've been confused with the v- world of reality TV business 
and real business. And so the bad news for if you're a real entrepreneur is Mark Cuban is probably not going to write you a check for $8,000 for 25% of your company or $100,000 for 40% whatever deals whatever bad deals and they're almost always bad deals for the entrepreneur Absolutely. on Shark Tank. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um but that's not how it works. 90% of companies that succeed will succeed by getting a customer. There is no emphasis on sales and marketing and that's I think two-thirds of the game. And that's where I think the media is shortchanging people along with kind of this ecosystem we've built that's dependent on the constant flow of investment, which, by the way, when when the bubble bursts again, as it inevitably will, will leave the guys like me who are revenue-focused while everyone else goes and scurries for jobs in corporate America until the bubble and then the whole cycle restarts. So so talking about like this reality TV, you know, and reality versus reality – um, <laughs> it's like, you know, um, you know, I just, I just, uh, finished, uh, season two of Silicon Valley. Great show. You know, I, I could see kind of some pitfalls in that. But when it comes down to, um, you know, the, the being an entrepreneur, starting a startup, everybody wants to grow really quickly. They want to be the Instagram. They want to be these unicorns, whatever. But I mean, you, you said you're starting a lifestyle company. I mean, when it comes down to it, well, a lifestyle know. business, and that's meant to support my lifestyle, not not a yeah. you know, I'm not teaching people how to make money or coach them. Yeah, but I, what I'm, I guess what I'm getting at is that there's a lot of companies that um, they talk to some mentors and they're like, you need to be able to scale, you need to be able to grow big, but at the same time, I mean, they can't even support the five or six people that are working on it or the three or four people that are working on it. So I mean. Do you have to start like as a lifestyle to support yourself, then be able to scale? I mean, so I, you know, having been on both sides of this and having worked in companies that have taken investment and been on, you know, founding teams in Austin that have gone that route, you know, it's a choice. So here's what happens though. The minute you start seeking investment, what you do is you move the goalposts for success several thousand yards down the field. Three percent of the companies that seek investment ever receive it. So you're immediately, you know, if you had a one in 10 chance of having a successful business, you've now split that by more than half. So it seems to me that if the goal is to start a business and a business that supports you and several other people and impacts the community, if you're doing this for what I would call the right reasons, then, um, you know, you are probably limiting your, ch- your chances of success by seeking investment. If you are doing this f- to become super rich well you know you're buying the lottery ticket and you can you know you can try the vc route and and then there are those businesses that deserve that have that kind of impact you know on on a country that you know that deserve to scale and expand etc but generally in my opinion and, and you can argue with this um that uber success like uber or like <laughs> you know a twitter or any of these companies is a series of unlikely fortunate and lucky events with some skill mixed in. Yeah. I, I would add to that that, <clears throat> I mean, it certainly depends on the type of company and what it is you're trying to accomplish, right? Because obviously if you're trying to create the next uh, cancer drug and you're going to have to go through FDA testing yeah. and all the rest and you need highly specialized people, you're obviously not getting anywhere without financing. Yeah. So that's a company that's just designed to go one route. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most people have more of a choice. Uh, but I want to get back to the point that, that Mark raised earlier about service providers, partially because, you know, James and I are, are service providers and uniquely qualified to talk about that. Um, and, and also, 
and also because of the way it forces people to make decisions about their company. I, I think we've tried at this point before, but if, if we haven't made it clear enough, I, the number one thing for any company is to not let people make your decisions for you, especially about where your company is going. Your, your service providers, uh, we've talked about the word fit, about, you know, working with people that understand you and can share your goals and visions and, and to at least an extent and can, and, and work on your wavelength, okay? And, uh, and can work with you as you are. That's very important because they're going to be able to provide you with better advice because they understand how you work. And you have to work, you have to find service providers that do that for you. It doesn't mean you get the first one that's, that's in front of you and you need to make good decisions. Or the one your accelerator recommends. <laughs> that's, that's certainly absolutely a case. Um, but, and, and I don't say this out of a pitch for services that, see, like, I would provide. I, I say this because Mark's right. Everybody in the community has to work for the benefit of the community, including service providers. You, you work in this area. It's giving back to an area that, that's helped you in the past. It's giving something out to the community without any expectation of result. And what you do is it's something that you support. It's a passion of yours. And, and as, as we kind of said earlier without using the phrase, a rising tide lifts all boats and, and everybody will benefit from a stronger community. And so, you know, those are the service providers to be, to sort of be looking out for in the community. And, and here's, here's my particular complaint about my own industry is that often I've seen firms give 10 or $15,000 worth of services nearly for free, um, to, uh, to, uh, companies and emerging growth companies. And what they say is, listen, you don't need to pay us until you get financed. But that does two really horrible things right off the bat. Number one, you're in debt to your service provider, whether it's an accountant, a lawyer, or whoever. And that's not where a company's funds should be. You should never be in debt to your service provider. Um, so, you know, you, you should be able to work out a scheme that's reasonable for payment and gets you what you need without being in debt. And, and, Second of all, it tells you that you need to get financed. It makes the decision for you because now you're thinking, oh, I got to go out there and get financed. So if I'm working on financing, you're not working on your product or your company uh, or you're not in control of the people who are working on your product or your company. So either, either way, you've just – there's sort of two bad decisions in one. And, well, and you know, you also – you manage other people's money differently than you manage absolutely. your own. You make different decisions and, and you know – in Connecticut, we've recently seen an example in that of that with a company called Back Nine, who made a lot of decision based, I think, based partially on the fact that they were spending state money and they were spending investors' money, and there's no way I think they would have spent their own money in that type of fashion. And it does make a big difference. You know, I look at when I write a check for something, I'm looking at that as my money, and I manage the finances of our business better. Because, you know, it's my money. Hell, that's my chair you're sitting in if you're in my office. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, one, it makes you more focused on financial things that matter. But, two, I mean, chances are, again, your business is going to fail. So, you know, when you start making, I think, more reasonable decisions about when to close up shop, when it's your money and your livelihood at stake, not, you know, the money from some investor who may or may not give you a second chance. For an entrepreneur, your, your responsibility is to take all the advice that's given to you, process it, and make your own decision. And you're responsible for that decision. No one else is. 
And so, you know, when it's where you take money or how you take money or how you use it and what you do with your 24 hours each day, it's, it, you know, it's important to remember that you're responsible. Yeah, I thought about that when I was invited here. <laughs> <laughs> and clearly made the right decision. Clearly. <laughs> so I think this has been really interesting. I, I really enjoyed the, uh, you know, talking about your experiences with Mass Challenge because it, it does present such a big difference from where we are in Connecticut. And, uh, you know, and having worked in the Boston market, you see how much more structured it is. Um, and in some ways, how easier it is and how more difficult it is for certain types of companies to get noticed there. Uh, in Connecticut, we could do anything from this point. I think the question to ask, though, is when you look at ecosystems like Boston and New York and Austin, is to what degree has nursing startups along become a business in and of itself that people are benefiting from, perhaps sarcastically, um, where, you know, when you become dependent to start nursing these companies along, some of which perhaps shouldn't have been given mm -hmm. the time of day, you do start introducing a different type of problem. And I think, you know, if we were to come back 18 months from now and have this conversation again, you're going to start seeing some of these bigger ecosystems that have pumped more startups into existence than really deserve to be functioning. I think you're going to start seeing them reaping the um, consequences of that. So I think it's something to watch for is, is the over-startupization of some of these ecosystems where companies that probably should have been selected out of existence and that would have been selected out with a revenue model aren't and continue to exist in language and, you know, absorb resources and, you know, spend either angel money or, you know, round A money un un until it runs out and, and, and they reach the end of the line and, and eventually, you know, you figure out who the loser is in the chain. But all the people in the startup end were the winners, right? The, the, the people who filed the, uh, you know, the initial papers, they got paid, you know, whatever service providers along the way got paid. So it kept the ecosystem going to a degree. And I think we're going to start seeing some of that. Not that, that, that the large ecosystem is a bad thing, but large just to be large and nursing companies along that again, probably aren't based on the best principles or a sound plan, um, probably isn't healthy either. Well, it's interesting, though, because those people, uh, just to point out a slight counter-argument, which is, which is that no, I'm not going to disagree with you that these ecosystems support are supported by service providers and others for whom profit from them, just quite you know, blatantly. And, uh, and that does, and that presents a lot of issues. Sometimes service providers run organizations because they're the ones sponsoring the organizations when they're the ones who really know, should not be in charge of this. They've got other things to do with their time. There should, these organizations would benefit the community by being run by other people. Um, but in, in this case, um, it's interesting because as one of our, our first earliest guests on the podcast said, you know, the key, some of the keys for, for many people is going to be to hurry up and fail. Um, failure is what's going to teach them what they need to do for the next company and where they went wrong. And so some of our service, some of the, our greatest companies are not, wasn't, wasn't necessarily their first try. I, I, I agree to a point. I think, you know, hurry up and fail is one of those things people like to say to each other, but doesn't actually happen in practice. It's kind of like if you pin, if you pin most VCs down, if you pin most entrepreneurs down, they will tell you that the revenue model and building based on customer acquisition is the best model to build a business. It's the least risk, mm -hmm. provides probably the most, you know, risk to benefit. Um, and they say that. But in the end, that's not how the ecosystem is run. 
And I think fail fast is one of those things, too, that people like to say to each other, but I'm not sure is really what goes on. And especially in an immature ecosystem like Connecticut, I, I think, you know, it's more like languish for years versus fail fast, where failing fast would probably be beneficial. Well, that that certainly could be a problem. No, I couldn't agree more. I've seen it time and time again. I mean, even with my own, my first startup, there was a point where I knew my business partner and I knew it was over, but it was, it was our baby. And, uh, we did everything we could to keep it alive. And in hindsight, we should have, uh, taken that dog all, uh, you know, out back and just shot at it years ago. But, um, you know, I'd say that was, uh, as Dave said, it, through failure, that's what you learn the most. And, you know, now with the startup I'm running now, when I start sensing that, I'm going to know when, hey, you know what, let's let's cash in the chips and, and walk away. And When you shoot old Yeller this time, if you have to, I'd like to be there. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get the invite, my friend. You'll get the invite. We haven't had in Connecticut a good failure party. You know, we need to have a kick at Someone needs to fail spectacularly. <laughs> And we need to have a massive party with lots of alcohol um, to celebrate that failure because we do need to send that message here that failure is part of this. I mean, you know, if if whatever the number is, whether you believe it's 90, 95, whatever number you believe, more fail than succeed. So where are these people? Where are these failures? And why aren't we celebrating them? I actually think that's a fantastic idea. I say that if we have listeners out there that have failing companies and they know they're about to fail and they want to make an argument as to why they should get their biggest party, they'll let us know. We'll see what we can put together. We can put together a big failure party. Learn to program will kick in the hors d'oeuvres. Fanta- oh, see right that. there. We already got. We already got a sponsor. <laughs> so I think we could. I think we could throw a pretty kick-ass failure party. So fail uh, 2015 <laughs> sponsored <laughs> by Learn to Program and Mirthicle. <laughs> <laughs> fail fest. We could. We you know we could really like push out fail the theme. Fest. We could get like we could get like a failed band to play. Oh man, that would you be, know? or a failed comic or something like that. A failed comic <laughs> that could be excruciatingly bad. Or, 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 where, where do the appetizers come from then? If we're doing this whole a failed, failed chef, a, a, a failed, failed chef. chef. <laughs> yep, we could have a failed clown and a failed mime. <laughs> well, I think, I think I think failed mime is 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 actually it's sort of repetitive. Uh, yeah, it's redundant. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you've gotten down to mime in the world of entertainment. You haven't succeeded. You know what we haven't talked about is some of my excellent business ideas, Dave. And I, I really would like to plug a couple of new companies I'd like to yeah, start. Let's hear them. Go right ahead. And, you know, I think if we could get some feedback on this through through whatever method you give the podcast feedback, I'm sure the team here will pass this on to me. So the first is, as you guys know, varietals have been really big in food, right? Yes. So, you know, like there's eight different kinds of Doritos. But the one thing that doesn't really have a lot of varieties is mayonnaise. So I was thinking to start a Chunky-style mayonnaise company. Oh. <laughs> That's... What, why didn't we stop this earlier? <laughs> I... <laughs> so it, it, it would be kosher mayonnaise. <laughs> so... <laughs> I think no. I may have some of that, but it's just really if, old. If you, are, if you are Jewish, I did have a company in Austin called Brisworks. Um, that's no. cutting edge. That's, that's really disgusting. Yeah, cutting edge. Right? Yeah, cutting edge. Exactly. Nailed it. On that note. <laughs> it, before we, uh, I want to talk about some current topics, but um, before we move on to that, I just want to get back to the sort of reality TV issue for a moment. Um, uh, it was brought up, and I think it's an excellent point that, you know, what, Shark Tank isn't teaching us 
is the um, is all the effort that goes into really making companies successful. So lots of people have ideas. There are fewer people out there that can actually execute on those ideas. And those people who can execute need to learn the process of defining your customer, testing your market, seeing if there's actually, see if you're solving an issue that people actually care about, and if not, how to pivot, and then building a, a good business plan and strategy and getting out there. And Shark Tank has none of that. But everybody sees it and thinks, oh, I can get a couple hundred thousand dollar investment. And frankly, I don't even know what they do with that $100,000 investment, what the conditions are. I mean, a good investor would be telling them how to spend that money. One, another reason I don't want good investors. <laughs> I'm so good when people tell me what to do. No, I, well, you know what I mean, though. I mean, a good investor would understand how to run a business better than, I'm guessing, this person who well, invented the latest uh, kitty seat. No, you know? I, th I, th I think you do have a good point, Dave. I think you know, what you don't see is, you know, the before and after. How did they yep. get to this point? And what happens afterwards? You know, they highlight a few companies once in a while. But you know a great number of these companies are failing. Of course. Um, a great number of them probably don't survive whatever vetting they do afterwards and never get the money to begin with. Sure. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, Shark Tank is a net positive in that it's gotten a lot of people interested in starting companies and entrepreneurship. I think it's a net negative in that it paints an extraordinarily um, simplistic picture of what entrepreneurship is right. And I, I don't think anybody would watch a show, unfortunately, reality show, you know, on, I, we had actually had a discussion about this, like doing a reality show around our company. Um, and, and then we were talking, we actually had some producers talking to us about, it, and I said, what are they going to do? Watch me use a computer and make phone calls all day? Because that's what I do. You know, I'm making connections. I'm making contacts. I'm trying to sell, you know, I'm making content. That's really what it's about for us. I don't know, you know, I mean, for other companies, watching people code, I mean, the sexy part is never the work. So Shark Tank, like any good marketer, is selling the results. Yeah, well, they're also, they're also creating their story for you. You know, as you said, you know, it's an, it's like any other reality TV program. It's edited. It's not oh, yeah. necessarily what actually happened. It's, it's how they want to portray it to you. Um, and the other thing is, it, it honestly creates a little bit of a scary uh, thought for me in terms of future crowd equity crowdfunding activities. When equity crowdfunding becomes more readily acceptable, you know, to the uh, you know, so now the average person on the street will be able to buy securities of startup companies online, and you know, are they going to base it on Shark Tank? Like, how are they going to assess these companies, and who's going to help them you know, learn how to assess a company? Well, I, I think. I, I think, and, and this has been the argument against you know, equity crowdfunding, is it's going to be ripe with fraud. Yes. Um, oh, yeah. And, you know, I mean, look at what people spend money on now. I mean, if you look at what people spend money on, the amount people pay on basically things that don't work, that have no promise of working, um, you know, those are the same people who will make investments in fraudulent companies. I, I'm not a big believer in crowdfunding. Um I, I'm not a big believer in the wisdom of the crowd. So, um, you know, George Bush was president for eight years. So I'm not, <laughs> I, you know, the wisdom of the crowd is not something I have a lot of faith in because the most of the crowd doesn't know what the hell it's talking about. Um, so, I, you know, the model for me is, is not one that I'm, I'm very excited about. You know, I know a lot of people who are excited about it on the other hand because it's going to open, they think these avenues of, 
funding. But I, I think that's going to be highly mitigated by fraudulent opportunities. They're going to burn a lot of people. And, and, and I, I think the, the, the furor over the whole thing is going to kind of subside quickly. Well, it's interesting. I mean, if you look at Kickstarter, as an example, you don't get anything back except whatever rewards they offer. But you know, surprisingly enough, I mean, well, out of all the failed Kickstarter projects, they still fund well. So, yeah, they do. Um, you know, and, and, and we have a, we have a company here in Connecticut that started based on, you know, doing Kickstarter consulting and, and Kickstarter, you know, Kickstarter events and stuff. And, and, and I don't know how they're doing, but I mean, it, it's an interesting take on, 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 you know, the Kickstarter movement. Um, I will say this though, the one company in Connecticut I did invest in sent me an email about two weeks ago saying I couldn't get the promised, um, premium because they couldn't afford to send it to me. So what does that say? Really? Uh, yeah. They couldn't, and, and I mean, it was not an expensive premium of, and I'm not going to call the company out, but you know, it says to me that you're really not managing these funds well. Mm. You know, if you can't afford to send me what you promised me to get me to, you know, fund your company to begin with. Well, that's, of course, one of the big problems with the crowdfunding is there's no control over whether you expect them to use the funds for. Right. By the way, the uh, one of the founders of Kickstarter is Charles Adler, uh, Staples High School class of 92, Westport, Connecticut. Really? I didn't yeah. know that. One of, my, one of my classmates. Fun facts with Mark Lassoff. <laughs> Would you like some more fun facts? No. Oh. no. <laughs> so, so one more. One more fun well, fact. <laughs> one more fun fact. Tomatoes are not vegetables. They're actually fruits. They are. Yes, they are. So, so where is this other co-founder of, you know, going back to the beginning of our conversation about the successful entrepreneurs having an impact on, you know, the Connecticut entrepreneurial ecosystem, you know, why, why, why isn't this co-founder of Kickstarter who's from Westport? you know, having an active role in what's happening in Connecticut. I would imagine because he lives in Chicago now. Um, but I, I, I will, I will say this, that, you know, um, i trying to think of the best way to, to tell this story. I did invite him to speak at an event for one of the service providers here in Connecticut. He consented and said he would, he would be happy to do it. Um, and the service provider made it so difficult for him to come and speak at this event that um, he eventually backed off. Hmm. So, you know, we also have to make it easy for people who have had entrepreneurial success to participate, to come and, and, and to give back. And, you know, this has, goes back to this idea of silos. It really yep. affected their little silo, their little world, which was, you know, New Haven based and they were afraid of offending Yale and all this other stuff. Yeah, you know, I mean, really just ridiculous concerns. Um, so in the end, he was offended basically and, and we've burned him. So that's one prominent founder who's from Connecticut, who feels an affinity for Connecticut, who feels burned by Connecticut. Wow. And that type of stuff, you know, we really, really have to be careful of. Because yeah. there's a, there a limited resource. And that's another reason why service providers shouldn't be running organizations. Uh, I mean, and they, certainly they have money and they sponsor organizations, but these organizations need to operate independently so they can not be limited by the people who are sponsoring them so that they can hold these events. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, and it, it was all about their, their little fiefdom, you know. Yeah. So when it comes down to mentorship, so I assume you've been, you know, you, you said it before, you've been mentored before. So what, what was, yes. <laughs> what, what's the kind of the greatest piece of advice that a mentor gave you or, or what type of advice that got you to the, the next level, you know? Um, I think it, when working with Pierre at Network Logistic, um, 
I learned the revenue first model and the, the customer acquisition model, which by the way is, is one that uh, you're going to see more and more, I think. Um, there's even a, a fairly prominent accelerator here in New England that is moving to a customer first model. They're taking a share of revenue versus focusing on getting their companies funded. They're focusing on getting their co- companies customers. Because for the long term, that's, that's the most sound strategy to have a business actually launch out of an accelerator. Um, because, you know, again, the, the, the hyper growth is playing the lottery. Um, and, and, and it's not necessarily the, in the best interest of the startup to begin with. But we've talked about what, you know, these startups have to feed in these ecosystems now. So I, I think it's, it's interesting. So, I mean, for me, Pierre, who, Went on after, after he sold network logistic. He was a, a corporate VP at LG. Um, he's done a lot of interesting things. He's at Ironton Global now. Um, a very accomplished business guy. He had started three or four companies. Um, and it was that idea of customer acquisition and revenue first and that everything was secondary to that. He was actually about profit from the beginning. Focus on profit. And you know what? He sold both of his companies and, and, Made a great deal of money on them, and he never took a penny in uh, in investment. Which means when he sold those company, one hundred percent of that check was made out to him and, and his wife. Mm-hmm. So now, being a mentor, now being a mentor, it's, um, you kind of mentioned it before. Is that sometimes mentors blow too much smoke, you know, uh, up uh, entrepreneurs? So it's like being a mentor. What is it? What's your responsibility? I have never blown up an entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> no. In, in my life, I don't know what you're accusing me of. No, but like, what what's the responsibility of a mentor to be like? I mean, do you really have to be really honest with these people? I mean, if you see it in somebody, you'd be like, listen, I, I don't see it. I mean, I, think I don't. You, I think you owe it to them to be really honest. But you know, for, first of all, there's a couple of faults. So we used to have a guy uh, here in in Connecticut named John who did the greatest mentor training. I went to his mentor training, and unfortunately, he's he's uh, moved to Pittsburgh, but. The greatest man and was a great mentor, a great guy, and a real asset here. And 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 uh, family basically took him to, to Pittsburgh. It was nothing against Connecticut, um, but he was also a guy who railed against, you know, this kind of uh, Univision looking at um, funding as 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 an endpoint, and. I reflect on that because mentors generally get the mentor, the new mentors at Mass Challenge got about 30 minutes training. It was a really good training presentation about being Socratic. It's not your company. You're not their boss, but you absolutely owe it to mentor relationship to be straight out honest with, with people. Um, you know, there are, and, 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 you know, that takes a certain type of person who's willing to, to take that risk. You know, most people want to be nice. I under, I understand that. They want to make you feel good. You know, and I guess there's a role for making people feel good and making them believe and making them um, motivated. But in the end, no one is served by working through and bringing to market an idea that is not valid. Yep. And every entrepreneur walks in with assumptions that have kind of cooked their way into fact in their brain, right? We assume this is true because I've always thought this was true. But if you've never tested it, it's an assumption. And one of the things I think that makes me a good mentor is that I can help you look at those things that are very much assumption and realize their assumption and test them. You may be right, 
but you may not be. And I don't know if you want to bet the next year of your life on an assumption that may not be true. And that, I think that's the important thing. And I think that's where most mentors fail. Your mentor is not a friend. It's not a, it's not someone to, um, help you with your self esteem. It's really someone to challenge you to bring out the best version of yourself, the best data for your company and put that company's best foot forward to make you better. That's the best way you can serve people who you're mentoring. And, you know, sometimes that's not the most accomplished man or woman in the room. That's a person who's been successful, but understands the role of the mentor and where the mentor can be the most beneficial to someone new. And the other thing is, you know, if you're, you can't do mentoring in 30 minutes in one meeting and you have to commit to a period of time with that company and a certain amount of time over, you know, the lifespan and growth of that company to really have an impact. You know, a 30 minute meeting is not a mentorship. That's advice. Yeah. And that there has, there's a place for that. Um, I don't give advice because I'm not really not that smart. But what I do is I know what buttons to push to kind of help people ask the right questions of themselves, of their business models, of their partners and their, um, and their, and their, and their, uh, the folks who are helping them along, their accountants, lawyers, et cetera, to help move things forward. And that's what a good entrepreneur does. It doesn't blow smoke up your ass, which I think is what you were trying yeah, to say. Yeah, I was going for that. I was going yeah. for that. Yeah. <laughs> Have you done that? <laughs> Blown smoke up, up, up. <laughs> On that note. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> no, but like what, how, what, what, what piece of advice would you give to an entrepreneur looking for a mentor? How do you go about it? I mean, like what, I mean, obviously you, a bunch of different answers can come out, but I mean, you know, going after a mentor, you said that 30 minutes, right? Everybody's time is valuable. So you may only get 30 minutes or an hour to understand. Yeah, that's it's a really hard thing to ask someone for that kind of commitment. If you don't, if you don't know them well, um, you know, in Connecticut, Bill Kenny is organizing, I think a really exciting, um, movement for people to be matched with appropriate mentors. It's still in its infancy. And I think uh, Reset's going to be involved in some of the other organizations. Actually, Reset has an event coming up okay. uh, on July 16th that's a mentor match. Let's and do a plug. And they're working with Hudson uh, – not Hudson Valley. Um, Valley, Valley Ventures. Up, Valley, Valley, Valley Ventures. Val- yeah, Valley, Valley Ventures up in Springfield. Um, and so they're – I'm, I'm just saying that. I mean there are organizations out there that are trying to – find good reasonable mentors to match people with and certainly the the accelerator programs in the states you know highlight who their mentors are and such but not everybody can be affiliated with an accelerator and sometimes the best thing to do is to just start meeting people in the community and you're spending a lot of time networking and finding out who who's going to match your personality yeah you'll you'll find out pretty quickly who's looking for you to write them a check and who's really interested I mean, a mentor really, and this is part of the mass challenge training, has to be selfless. They have to be doing this without any expect of return. So if someone's sniffing around for a board seat because they like your idea or for you to take them on as a partner or for you to become their client, that's, that's, that's not a mentor. They may have something valuable to offer you as their customer. But that's not a mentor relationship. Mm -hmm. The mentor really has to be seeking nothing out of the relationship except the natural fulfillment of having helped. Mm -hmm. And and good organizations will remove people from the organization who do that. If you're holding yourself out as an accelerator or a place where all entrepreneurs can come, then you have to be very careful about who you're allowing to talk to these entrepreneurs. 
what I would call some of those perhaps bad actors within the ecosystem, everyone knows who they are now. Um, and it's very difficult for them to operate and take advantage of some of these new companies. So, I mean, I think that's a good thing that, you know, a lot of people could ask me, and I'll give you my opinion. You know, what do you think of X? Oh, well, I think he's a scam artist. Um, you know, so, I mean, I think that type of news travels quick and, and I think fewer and fewer people are getting taken in by people who, who provide less than valuable services. So as we're going to try wrapping up, Mark, do you have any last thoughts you want to pass on? It's only been an hour. It's felt like three. <laughs> <laughs> We've got at least 30 minutes of content, too. <laughs> yes. Um, my last thought is www.learntoprogram.tv. Love it. Love it. Shameless no, I, plug. I love it. And by, I, by the way, is that a subscription service or is it like pay by the, by the course? Thank you for asking that question. It's actually both. Nice. You can do either. Um, in all seriousness, though, I, I would say that, you know, Connecticut has a long way to go, but there have been definitely positive movements I've seen in the last couple of years that, that give me a lot of hope and that make me, you know, want to continue to be involved and, and see things grow here. I think this is an exciting place. It's great quality of life. I mean, how many, how many other places can you go fishing in the morning, see a professional ball game in the afternoon and, and, you know, take a, take a walk to, uh, you know, take a, take a hike in the early evening. I mean, it really affords everything in the way of lifestyle. And, you know, you can make businesses work here. We actually have one of the highest percentages of small business ownership of any state. So lots of people are making it work and, and don't believe the hype around it being impossible or, or any more challenging here in Connecticut than it is anywhere else. Because truthfully, I, I don't think it's really the case. That's right, James. No more statistics from you. Yeah, I, just <laughs> providing uh, information, judgment, judgment free. Well, uh, I think that's about going to wrap it up for today. Uh, one last thing, Eric, if uh, someone wants to help us find the appropriate company for a fail party, what's the best way to get hold of us? Uh, go to www.ctstartup.com and uh, you can um, put it on, you know, we have a, um, a comment uh, or contact us page. You can kind of contact us and let us how badly you failed. Because remember, we need to know how badly you failed. It can't be a, like a small fail. You have to fall flat on your face and your nose is literally flat on your face. So Sp Spectacular you know, fail. Yeah, Titanic exactly. Fail. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so it, it's even better if you want to go to our Facebook page, you know, CT Startup. And tell tell the world how bad you failed too, and maybe we'll uh, we'll get people to don't to, be ashamed. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. It would also help if you actually learn something from the experience. Yeah, well, yeah. obviously, but <laughs> other than other than falling in your face, and then we'll have to start the hunt for the failed chefs, the failed musicians, the failed yeah, yeah. clowns. Yeah, but we'll take on that responsibility, and I'll that's on us. I'll bring chunky style mayonnaise. Nice, great. <laughs> well, that's gonna do it for today. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. You've just listened to the CT Startup Podcast. You can find us on iTunes or check out our webpage at ctstartup.com where you can find all our social media links. And please, please leave us your feedback. Special thanks to our production team, Kate Rupart, Dylan Gilliatt, and Evan Dopus, as well as our equipment and marketing sponsor, Murtha Kalina, LLP. <laughs>